0: Amen. If you have been in church uh, probably much at all in your life, then you know that a lot of Christians and a lot of churches have this bad reputation that they like to fight about music as much as they like to sing to Jesus. Now, it's not that way at Sharon Heights, thank God. And by the grace of God, it's not going to be that way. Somebody say amen. But y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like there are some people in some churches, like they refuse to sing any song that reminds them of the songs they sang growing up in church as a child. And then there are other people, bless their hearts, very good believers, who if you dare, roll out any song with a copyright date after 1842. <laughs> brother, they're going to sit there with their arms crossed and look miserable like they are in a proctologist waiting room instead of worshiping Jesus. And even just as a for instance, the kind of churches that I grew up in, you did not dare think about bringing drums into the sanctuary. I mean, that's a devil's instrument. Hey, you bring that in here, everybody's going to start listening to Led Zeppelin backwards and want to kill their parents. That's the way, I'm telling you, I heard that growing up, which is, and, and it's a shame that Christians fight about music like that because we are a singing faith. And, and we've just seen that displayed so well for us this morning that God's people are going to a, a place where they're going to sing to Jesus forever. And we sing every step of the way through our valleys, through our battles and ups and downs. We sing to Jesus. And many of us who were raised in church, we've been singing to Jesus uh, since before we can remember, right? So what I want to do this morning to begin our time together is I want to sing a song that you have probably been singing uh, longer than you can remember. You've known this song longer than you've known Amazing Grace or Heartbreak Hotel. And if you know this song... I'd like for you to sing it with me. Alright, I'll try and start us off. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Alright, see if y'all know the next verse. Won't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Won't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Won't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. And it's a shame that some of our teenagers here this morning are too cool to sing along because they're going to come lead us to the next verse. No. How about this one? Hide it under a bushel. Oh, that was pitiful. Hide it under a bushel? Maybe. Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. There you go. There you go. You've been singing that song since probably before you could remember. And it teaches you a couple of important things. Number one, your pastor never has any business singing in public at all. Number two, from the time you were old enough to understand anything at all, there were Bible school workers, Sunday school teachers, parents, grandparents, and others in the church that wanted you to know that your little life could make a difference in a dark world. But I wonder today, how many of y'all forgot that? How many of y'all really have forgotten that Jesus has placed the light of His glory inside of you to shine for Him? And so now your whole Christian experience uh, occurs hunkered down inside the four walls of a church where it's safe, comfortable, and easy. Some of y'all know that the world is dark. You complain about how dark the world is every time you come to church. You post your things on Facebook about how terrible the world is. Or you have people at work that you like to gripe with about how dark the world is. But some of y'all believe that it really is so dark that it's hopeless. You think it's so dark that it's hopeless. Others of y'all, truth is your light just didn't shine bright at all. And you're not different enough to make a difference. Today we are going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus reminds us that if we are really following Him, that following Him... It means being so different that we make a difference. It means pushing back the decay of sin. It means pushing back the darkness of the world as we live as salt and light. It's in the best sermon ever and it's in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 13. If you would take your Bible and turn there with me this morning. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 13 when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we reverence the Word of God. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got the words up on the screen for you to follow along. But I'm sure that most all of you have probably heard these verses before. Matthew five, thirteen. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You can be seated, and I believe the Lord is going to speak to us this morning. Now, if the Sermon on the Mount really is the best sermon that's ever been preached, then it would lead naturally to the best lives that have ever been lived. And that really is Jesus' point here in these verses of Scripture that we've read. Right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, He says, if you're really going to follow Me, you're going to follow Me as I change the world. He says, My people should be so prominent and so influential in the world and so different from the world that they actually make a positive difference in the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us what it means for Him to be King of our lives. And if Jesus is the King of our lives then His reigning in our hearts and His reigning in the world actually does make a difference. Jesus' life is so unlike any that came before or any that has come after that it is contagiously different. If we know Him, He will export His life into us and we will import that life into other people. Jesus shares His life with us and we share that life with other people. So that if the Sermon on the Mount is the best sermon ever preached, that produces the best lives that have ever lived, then the world should be better than it's ever been because of what Jesus says to us here in this passage of Scripture. And that's what Jesus really is saying in these verses. It's very, very simple. It's all right here on the surface. That if we really are following Jesus in the world, the world is better because we're in it. And He uses two really, really simple metaphors. Two very, very familiar metaphors to call us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And today we're going to look at what those metaphors actually mean for us today. But before we dive into them, I want to give you a couple of historical and theological considerations. Namely, that this has always been God's heart for His people. God told the people of Israel back in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse number 6. He said, I will make you as a light to the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God had given Himself to the people of Israel. He had given them His Word. He had given them His prophets. He would given them His law. He had given them His blessings. He had given them all of these great treasures in this world. And He had done that so that other people would see His glory shining from them. And so that other nations would say, we want what they have. We want to know their God and enjoy those blessings. By the time you get to the life of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, the nation of Israel has gone totally dark. They're no longer lighting up the world. Their influence has been completely extinguished. And Jesus comes along and effectively says in these verses, I am the new Israel of one who is the true light of the world. And I'm showing my people what it means to follow me and that if you follow me, then you will yourself light up the world. So understand right up front today that God has never formed a people and given them rituals and giving them ceremonies, and giving them worship experience, and giving them rules to follow, to say, now y'all go enjoy that amongst yourselves. God has never been interested in creating a people who are spiritual consumers, who hoard up all of His blessings. God has always created a sent people. And He's saying to His followers here, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, you are a sent people. So what do these very salient, very illuminating metaphors mean? Well, let's look at them together first. Jesus says in verse 13, As salt, we need to permeate the world. As salt, we permeate the world. You are the salt of the earth. I'm sure you're familiar with those words. We use them sometimes if we're talking about someone who's a good person. But here Jesus is talking about our relationship to Him. Now, I'm sure you know that the Bible uses several different metaphors to talk about our relationship to the Lord. The Bible compares us to soldiers because we are in constant spiritual conflict. The Bible calls us sheep because, you know, we're kind of dumb and stubborn. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. So why does Jesus compare us to salt? Why salt? Simple. Because salt is awesome. Salt makes everything better. It makes that which is bland interesting. It makes something that's boring, useful. Salt is necessary for life. You cannot live without it. Now, don't tell your cardiologist that, but it's true. Right now, your body is made up of like four-tenths of one percent salt. So that if you weigh 200 pounds, then there's about a whole pound of you that's salt. You've got to have it. And in Jesus' day, even though people did use salt to make their food more appetizing, that wasn't the only way they used it. And so when people heard Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth, they probably are hearing more than we are hearing. And when we understand the way they used salt in their world, then we can probably figure out what Jesus is really up to in this verse of Scripture. Well, understand that in the days before refrigeration, one of the primary ways people used to preserve food was to salt it. Like, they're in the Middle East here, 2,000 years before Kenmore, alright? And so, if you catch some fish, or if you kill a lamb, or, or sacrifice a cow, or whatever you do, and you're going to eat that in a couple of days, you don't want that laying out in the sun when it's 1,000 degrees into shade. And so how did they preserve it? Well, they pretty much turned everything into jerky. They salted it down so that it would last. It was a means to fight decomposition and to fight decay. Salt was also used in the days before modern medicine to, to fight against germs and bacteria so that literally they would rub salt into people's wounds. Don't you know that was a lot of fun? And salt was even used in the Old Testament. We read in Leviticus 2, it was used to prepare those animals for sacrifices. It was part of ritually making them clean. And when you take all of those meanings together and load them into what Jesus says here, what He says is that my people are the means that God uses to fight decay in the world. That my people are the means that God uses to fight the decomposition of sin that occurs in this world. It's almost as if Jesus looks out over a world where everybody is living the same kind of sinful, self-centered life. And He sees these people living in such a way that it's like a bad song stuck on repeat. And Jesus says, my people will be different. My people will fight against the decay of sin. And when they are rubbed into this world that is decomposing in its lostness, things will be better and things will be different. Jesus is teaching here is as powerful as it is simple. Christians are to be good for the world. And if they're not good for the world, then they're good for nothing. That's what he says. So a lot of times, maybe in your own life, you've seen Christians that weren't really good for much. Some of y'all may feel like you're not good for much. But we've seen periods in history where Christians and, and even the church, as it may be called, seems to be very bad for the world. And it could be that you're hearing this today and you might not even be a believer yourself. And you think if there is any hope for the world, that hope is going to come in political uh, parties. It's going to come in scientific advancement. It's going to come in, you know, economic revolution or something like that. Or you may be so nihilistic this morning that you think there is no hope at all for the world. But Jesus says, My people are the hope for the world as they live for me. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? And when we look at this world we live in that is dark and is decaying, I would want you to know that even if we don't, even if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, that when you look at a world where children starve to death and you look at a world full of brokenness and you see all of the pain around you and you think, What is wrong with the world? You are agreeing with the basic presupposition of the Lord Jesus here. You're agreeing there's something that's wrong. And that's what Jesus is saying. Something is wrong in the world. But how is it going to be made right? Jesus says, it will be made right because my people are in the world. And again, this is always what God had been doing with His people. Back, Way back in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, the people of Israel were about to be deported into the land of Babylon for 70 years as the judgment of God. And many of them would want to do everything possible, understandably, to get out of that. But the Lord tells them in Jeremiah chapter 29, He says, you go and you do good for your city. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Put your roots down in your city. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare. Seek the good of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Folks, God tells you today the same thing. Do good for your city. Your city should be better because you are in it. And I hope that's true today. The city of Birmingham, Alabama, 29.8% of its residents live below poverty. Who's supposed to fix that? Some of y'all thinking, well, they're supposed to fix it themselves. Others, y'all thinking the government's supposed to fix it. Jesus says you are supposed to help those people. 90% of students in and around Birmingham receive free or reduced lunch in public schools because of their income level. Who it supposed to feed those children? That's their parents' responsibility. Sure. But if they're not stepping up, who should be the people to help them? 6,000 children in Alabama are in foster care today. Who's supposed to be adopting and loving those babies and opening up their homes? It's us. You are the salt of the earth. Drug addiction is rampant in communities like Brookside all the way to Mountain Brook. It knows no race. It knows no economic status. Who's supposed to impact that? You are the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus says here. Women live in abusive homes. Who's supposed to help in those situations? You are the salt of the earth. How do we do that? By the way that we raise our families. By the way we work our jobs. By the way we coach ball teams. By the way we serve in our church. By the way we volunteer in organizations. The normal things we do in life. We do them in such a way that we seek the good of our city. Look, we all wish our world was more patient, don't we? I mean, everybody wishes the world was a little less fake. We all wish the world was more forgiving. And definitely we wish the world was less stressed. Do you realize that's the life Jesus is calling us to here in the Sermon on the Mount? He says that if I am your king, He said you will not be a slave to the self defensive impulses of anger or the self-satisfying impulses of lust. Amen. Jesus says, if I am your king, He says, then you really are going to pray for and do good for and seek the good of people that have hurt you deeply in your past. Right. Jesus says, if I am your king, then you are not going to use your religious exercises as a means to make yourself feel better or to look better, but you are going to desire from a sincere heart to connect with God as your Father. Jesus says, if I am your king, you are going to be free from all of the slavery and the chains of materialism, and you are not going to be tied down to this world, and as a consequence, you are going to be free from the worry that consumes so many people's hearts. Jesus says, my people, if they're really following me, they're not going to be judgmental jerks for Jesus. They're not going to take everybody else's sin more seriously than they take their own sin. But Jesus says they're going to live and relate to me on the basis of grace. So is there anything about that kind of authentic, transparent, sincere, humble life that would be appealing to people in the world? Of course! A life that's free of stress and free of anger and bitterness and free of lust and free of material worry. Is there anything that's interesting about that? Jesus says if you live that way, it will make a difference. So are you showing those kind of values to the world? Well, if not, Jesus essentially says you are good for nothing. He says if the salt has lost its saltiness, he says what good is it? Salt that is not salty is like a phone without a charger. It's like a light receptacle without light bulbs. It's like a car without gas. It's useless. And in Jesus' day, uh, you know, our salt really doesn't ever expire because it's been so, you know, manufactured or treated or whatever. We've got salt in our fellowship hall that Noah probably took off the ark, but... But in Jesus' day, their salt you know, was an actual natural product, a mineral product, and it would lose its saltiness over time, and there's nothing you can do with it. What are you going to do? Resalt your salt? That's stupid. Why would you do that? Jesus says that if His people are not good for the world, then they are useless. But our problem, I think, many times, is that we are so confused about what it means to do good that we don't really get the full weight of what Jesus is saying here. See, for salt to actually... Fight against decay. It has to be rubbed on that piece of meat. It has to penetrate. It has to marinate. For it to actually fight, you know, decay in a wound, it has to actually get inside. Salt does no good in a salt shaker. So please know today that you cannot be obedient to what Jesus teaches you here in the Sermon on the Mount just by sitting in church. you got to get out of the salt shaker at some point and do some good in this world. So here is a... Personal inventory. A couple of questions you can ask yourself. Just to see how you're doing with this. First. How many non-believers do you actually have relationships with? How many non-believers do you actually have relationships with? Oh, Brother Jesse, listen, I work with that bunch of pagans. Those Philistines down there at the job. You don't know what they're like? They're killing me. How many of them do you actually know? Do you pray for? How many of them would actually bring their problems to you? How many of them do you actually talk to? How many relationships do you have with non-believers? Second, when was the last time you prayed for somebody that was not in your immediate family or in your church family? And I would just add a sub-note there. When was the last time you prayed for something that didn't have to do with surgery or a gallbladder or a bad back? Third, when you think about our church... Do you think that everything Sharon Heights does should be about getting people in here? Or should it really be about getting us out there? Finally, do you see the world and all of its sin and all of its decay, do you see the world as an enemy to be avoided or as a mission field to be reached? Friends, a Christianity that is selfishly creating a safe space, A church culture of baby showers and fellowships and good preaching that never takes those blessings out into the world. It's not Christian. So why do you say that? Because this is what Jesus said. If you're not being the salt of the earth, then you're not being His follower. I don't know what you call somebody who thinks they're a Christian, but they're not following Jesus, but I guarantee it's not Christian. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Go change the world. But that's the first metaphor. The second metaphor is, you are the light. You are the light of the world. He says... As light, we illuminate the world. Just as salt permeates the world, as light, we illuminate the world. God's people do good. Like salt in decay, they preserve against that. And like light in darkness, they fight against the darkness of sin. You are the light of the world. Now, I want you to think about a couple of things before we really dive into this. First of all, I want you to think about the people Jesus said this to. If you go back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 1, Jesus is talking primarily here to his disciples these are kind of the very first people to leave behind everything and follow Jesus. These are people that their whole world before Jesus was fishing boats and backbreaking labor and blue-collar work. These are ordinary, simple people. And Jesus looks at those guys who, you keep reading the Gospel of Matthew, these are guys that are going to have serious doubts. These are guys that are totally selfish. These are guys that are in it for all the wrong reasons. These are guys sometimes that are greedy. These are guys that are self promoting. These are guys that are very prejudiced about a lot of things. And Jesus says to those guys, Y'all are the light of the world. You guys are the light of the world. Is that not crazy to think about? That Jesus looks at them and says, You know what? You guys are going to change the world. And here's the really crazy thing they did. They did. Because Jesus' light shined through them. So I hope that you know right today at this point that Jesus looks at us with all of our baggage, with all of our guilt, with all of our hang-ups, with all of our confusion, with all of our prejudices, with all of our mixed motives, with all of our selfishness, and the Lord says to His people, just like He did to the disciples, you guys can change the world. Isn't that an amazing thought? You can make a difference in your city. You can make a difference in somebody's life. You can do good For the world, whether you're a young parent or a single mom or a divorcee, a high school dropout, a college graduate, whether you've been walking with the Lord for 40 or 50 years or 15 minutes, you are the light of the world. So think about who Jesus says that to, but now think about who says this. If I just came in here today and said, I'm going to preach a stirring sermon about how you should make a difference in the world. And I just made this up and I said, Sharon Heights Baptist Church, you are the light of the world. You people are going to do, make the positive change. You would think he has lost his mind. I mean, look at us. We are so normal and so ordinary. What difference are we ever going to make? Or if I came in here and I said this about myself. If I said, I am the light of the world. And I am going to change the world. You would think, he's the most arrogant jerk of Jefferson County. So understand here, this is Jesus who says this. This is Jesus' opinion about his people and the difference that they can make. He offers us something more than just a weekend worship experience. He offers us lives that actually do good. He offers us lives that really do impact the needs of others. So Sharon Hype's Baptist Church, if, I want you to know, and for all of you here today that are following Jesus, even if you're not officially a member here, I want you to understand that according to the words of Jesus, you really can see Him use you to impact things like drug addiction. You can You can see Jesus use you to push back the darkness that can be in our foster care system. You really can see Jesus use you to put marriages back together. You can see Jesus use you to help counsel teenagers who struggle with depression and wonder if their life is really worth living. Jesus says, you got y'all are the light of the world. We're down here in Brookside, Alabama. Who would have thought that he'd have put the light of the world? And here we are. The world is dark. Church, it is not hopeless. And the reason it is not hopeless is because you are in it. And because He is in you. That's the way this works. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, illuminating the darkness. Then He goes on to say, you are a city set on a hill, in verse number 14, that cannot be hidden. And everybody would have immediately understood, you know, this concept in Jesus' day because they were used to traveling through the open deserts. And when they would come upon those cities, a lot of times the sun would reflect across those limestone buildings and it would have this kind of huge, unreal glow. And in that world when traveling was notoriously dangerous, you were much safer in cities than you were out of the middle of nowhere. And so that city was a signal. You saw that light glowing or at night you saw all of the lamps burning in the homes and you saw that and you knew there's safety just ahead. There's a place of rest up ahead. There's a place of refreshment just up ahead. If I can make it that far, I will be okay. Jesus says that's how his church works in the world. That we are a signal to people who are broken and to people that are hurting and to people whose lives and souls are in danger. That, hey, come with us and you'll be okay. Come with us and we can help you. Come with us and we can give you rest and we can bring you to safety in Jesus. Then he goes on to say that nobody would ever light a lamp, that's an oil lamp, and put it under a basket. Because it covers it up. In those days, people would light their homes with candles or with oil lamps They would have kind of these conches in their walls and put them up high in the wall so that it would light up the whole house and everybody could see because the lamp was lifted up. Jesus is simply saying here he has not made any invisible Christians. He has made us to be visible. He has made us to shine brightly for the glory of God. That's what he wants out of our lives. But this is connected to who Jesus himself is and what he did. You see, this is a metaphor that Jesus... We use about Himself frequently. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We get a theological perspective of that in John 1, verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the one who is himself the light of the world. And if you feel today like your life is in darkness because of sin and guilt and regret and doubt, I hope you understand that Jesus can turn the light on in your soul. And Jesus can bring you out of all of that today. But if that has happened to you, then you are now supposed to be reflecting his light to others around you. Now, Paul would go into detail about how this works. And it's important we get this. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one deg- degree of glory to another. Just a few verses later, he would say in 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You shine most powerfully for Jesus when you see Him most clearly. As you learn Him, as you know Him, as you begin to trust Him more and more, as you begin to learn His will and know His heart, so then you will inevitably reflect Him to people around you who need Him. So Jesus is telling us here that our lives exist for the purpose of doing good, for the glory of God and for the good of others. So that means that I should be willing to lay aside my life for the good of somebody else. Let me ask you, why in the world would I want to do that? When everything in me and everything in my culture says that I should live totally for myself. Everything I hear and almost everything I feel on a daily basis says that I'm number one and I should live totally for me. And nobody ever has the right to tell me to limit my rights. Why should I lay aside my life for the good of somebody else? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. Say, Brother Jesse, you really think that I should lay aside my money to be good for somebody who's in need? Why would I lay aside my treasure to bless somebody who has nothing? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you at the cross. Why would I give up my time? Why would I give up my calendar that's already overloaded to be good to somebody else, to take my time and invest in somebody else's. Because Jesus left eternity, walked in our time to take us into eternity. And if we get that, if we really understand that concrete gospel foundation underneath us, then we realize, guess what? I really can lay aside my treasure. Because my treasure is not the money that I can count. And no matter how much of that junk I give away, I'm never really going to lose what's mine in Christ. I can give up my time. I can give up a couple of hours a week to serve somebody who needs me. Why? Because I'm going to live forever. And that time I give in service, that's not going to make a dent in the eternal life that Jesus has given me. I really can lay aside all the things that I think I deserve because Jesus has given me grace that I never could have deserved. And no matter what I sacrifice now, it's never going to undo what He has given for me. The gospel is good news. And if you believe good news, be good for something. That's what Jesus says here. Because as God's people, either we shine brightly for the glory of God or we make the darkness darker. That's all you're ever going to do with your life. Jesus says as people see those good works, they turn and they glorify God. What has God put us in the world to do? It's a different answer for different people, but ultimately it's the same answer, right? He has put us here to bring glory to God. Not just so we can have bumper stickers on our car that say in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. But God has put us here... To do good so that people will see the good we do as a reflection of who God is. Now, I want you to understand today that one of the most important, if not the most important concept of Scripture, is that you can never save yourself by doing good. You will never be brought to God by doing good works. In fact, the Bible says that if you don't know God, then you are incapable of doing good works. So like if you have come into church today thinking, you know, I've done a good thing today and now God owes me some blessing or God is going to owe me heaven because I came. Then look, you didn't come here today for him. You came here for you. And God looks at the good you did today as a wicked sin. That's why, folks, we don't need to just repent of all the bad junk we do. We need to repent of all the good stuff we tried to do. And we need to say, Lord, that can't help me. That can't save me. I'm a sinner all the way down. Even my very best is tainted by my wickedness. I need grace. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You cannot do good apart from grace. It's like the old Christmas song. You know, Santa Claus is coming to town. You know, you better not pout. You better not shout. Whatever. because Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. And there's that one line in there that says, be good for goodness sake. But think about how dumb that is. That song's not telling you to be good for the sake of being good. That song's telling you to be good so you can get loot under your tree on Christmas morning. Manipulate Santa Claus and get good. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And that's the way we think about our good. I'm going to do good and get something from God. The Bible says that is impossible. You cannot do good. It's impossible for you to save yourself by doing good. But it is also as impossible after you have been saved for you to not do good. Listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians two eight, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. See, I told you, you cannot save yourself by good works. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Okay? But verse 10. For we are His workmanship. He did the work. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Created in Christ Jesus to occupy this pew. Jesus comes back. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in then. Now that word workmanship right there is not a word that we would necessarily use, but really it's the, the word for masterpiece. We are His masterpiece to show what He can do in His power, in His grace, and for His glory. Like when Michelangelo was laying on his back and painting the Sistine Chapel. And that masterpiece stands as a testament to His ability and His skill. You exist to bring glory to God as a testament to His skill. Now, y'all ain't ever going to see the Sistine Chapel. So, like that guitar solo in Freebird that goes for, you know, two and a half hours, is a testament to those guys' musical mastery. Jesus says, Paul says, you are a masterpiece of the grace of God. I know half of y'all don't know who Leonard Skinner is because you love Jesus, but for those that don't, I hope the next time you hear Freebird, you think about Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Why? Because I am the light of the world and I want my good works to glorify my Father in heaven, right? God wants to use your life as that masterpiece to say, I can display through you my glory and the good that I do. Jesus looks out into a world and he sees a world that is dark. He sees a world that is decaying. He sees a world where people are groping about in the darkness of their separation from God. Where they are trapped in the gloom of hopelessness. Where they are lost amid a fog of confusion and they have no idea which way to turn. And he looks out and he sees these little glimmers of light. And who are those little glimmers of light? Those are his people. Living their lives shining for Jesus. And like salt on a baked potato, like stars in a night sky, you know when that's missing. So I would just ask, if for some reason you were not in the world tomorrow, if you tragically died or if, you know, there was rapture practice and you were one of the ones that got called up, and you were missing from the place where you work or you were missing from the people you're around the majority of your life, would they notice you weren't there? Would they... Notice that you had gone missing. Do you shine so brightly and like a salty snack create such an appetite for Jesus that they would say, I know he's not here. I know she's not here. What about our church? If our church for some reason just ceased to exist today, if this was it, the last sermon ever preached here, the last song ever sung, the last dollar ever taken up, the last prayer ever prayed, and there was no more Sherrod Heights Baptist Church, would Birmingham, Alabama notice we were gone? Would the world notice we were gone? Would they notice that we're not here? This world is a dark world. That's what Jesus says here. He says that because of sin and because of men being what they are and because of man's separation from God, the world has gone dark. Jesus says the world is dark for the single mom who feels like she has no hope, feels like she has no help. Jesus says the world is dark for that dad who's down in the basement downloading pornography on his computer while his family's upstairs asleep. Jesus says that the world is dark for those teenagers who cut themselves because they have no idea how they can cope with what they feel in life. It's dark for those people that are struggling with drug abuse. But he says just a few little lights can make a difference. Just a few little lights. Can show us the glory of who God is. Can show them the glory of who God is. Jesus says one little light lifted high can make a difference. Jesus says you are those little lights shining in a dark world. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He says if you're not up to some good, you're up to no good. So I wonder how many of us need to just be honest and say, we're up to no good around here. But we want to be up to some good. We want to push back against the darkness while we're here. For such a time as this, God help us. I don't know if our musicians can play in the dark. Somebody can hit the lights back there if you'd like to. But just because we turn the lights on out here and go out in the sunshine, the world's still dark. That's right, that's right. And it needs people who are going to make a difference. Who say, I want my life to glorify Jesus. We're going to stand together today if you're able. And the invitation is simply this. If you realize that you've been up to no good. And you want to be up to some good. Come and say, Lord, let me shine for your glory. And maybe you're here and you think, you know, my life is dark. I know the world's dark, but my heart is dark. And I want Jesus to change that. I can tell you how to meet Him. And I can tell Him how that Savior could use somebody like you to make a difference in this world.